Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week, can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I stay the founder at least twice a day, I have to say. Quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas I could use this at hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give a 100% guarantee via their 30 days back money back guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say I'm interviewing Carlos Torres, who is the IT Director at Generational Equity. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it, but it's been, it's been a couple of years. <laughs> it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a product in the making, but I'm proud to be here. And obviously, you're aside here. I, I've always admired you. Great friendship, so happy to help. Thanks again, bud. I really appreciate it. So I know it's been a couple of years since you first got into IT, but I mean, what was that first issue that got you interested in the subject and the industry? So uh, I got started in, uh, in IT basically since college, right? I, everything back in 1986 was like, you got to be in computers. That's yeah. that's what you have to be. So somehow I got that ridiculous idea of doing it. And uh, you know, ever since I started what now I call the dark side, which <laughs> is the computer science and development and all that. Now I'm in, then I moved to networking and all that stuff, the background, the, the inter infrastructure. And that's why we call software development the, the dark side. <laughs> but no, uh, throughout my career, I've, I've had to deal with everything. So I'd like to say... I'm not a, an expert at one thing, but a jack of all trades. That's what I like to call myself. Absolutely, that's I mean, that's the best way to do it. And that, what was that first role? Was that with the tennis team or the tennis association? So it was with the Puerto Rico Tennis Association. So I used to play um, tennis in college. So I knew a, a little bit, let's say it that way, about the tennis environment back in Puerto Rico, where I'm originally from. So when I was about to graduate in May of 1990, uh, so in April, there was this ad about they were looking for, for an IT guy in the Puerto Rico Tennis Association. And I said, like, tennis, which I play, and go. technology, that's a match made in heaven. So yeah. I applied, and thankfully, even though I had not graduated yet, they made the exemption so that I could start at least part-time and then full-time once I graduated. That's great. That's way ahead of the curve. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you want to call it in... Uh, Tennis term, it was a great spin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what were you doing when you first joined the org? So basically, I was in charge of their, their technology, which back then was just making sure that the computers were working, working fine. Um, I was uh, able to manage also the, the way that the, the tournaments, the scheduling, there was a software created by the USDA. But then also the person that was in charge of the accounting told me, hey, you are a software programmer. Can you do us the accounting software? Mm -hmm. And that was my first big challenge in technology. I was like, oh, my God, an accounting software. <laughs> and But it was a good learning experience, you know, developing that uh, accounting software, which they used until I left. Oh, wow. After that, you know, they started to use uh, QuickBooks and all that stuff. But, but uh, at, at the time when I was there, it was that 
Um, also, by the time that I left, it was mainly because I started, I took a, a networking uh, course to install the, the first network there. It was a token ring. So oh, really? Yeah. So back then, yeah, token ring was uh, different. So what was that back in the day, just for the folks at home who might not be familiar with the terms? So token ring is uh, a sequential type of network where a token goes by each of the end uh, endpoints. Be a picking up the data or d or just leaving some data on it. And it goes on a ring because it's just sequential. So you go from one computer to the other in a close ring. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why they call them a token ring. It's like a token goes from computer. Uh, but um, yeah, it was fun back then. And with that, I was able to go to my next job, which was at McChirp and Dome. Uh, and it was because of uh, my stepbrother who was working there at the time uh, said, hey, they're, they're needing a networking person there. And I said, like, oh, yeah, I'm an expert. I already installed one. Little did I know that Token Ring wasn't the only one. You know, uh -oh. Ethernet, <laughs> FDDI, all those uh, stuff. But, you know, it was a learning experience. Everywhere I've been, it's learning a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was in charge there of the network. That's awesome. What was the biggest challenge or one of the most enjoyable moments from that spot in your career? In, in my career or in or at that particular uh, place? Oh, in that particular place. I would say uh, it was, they were, I would say we were getting to the, that Y2K thing. Yep. And, you know, everybody panicked that you know, the world's going to end, the computers oh, yeah. are going to stop. <laughs> so we, we were charged, back being in Puerto Rico, they, the Merck used to, bring a lot of their new technology just to test it with us. You know? <laughs> we're, we're not going to test it in the States. We're going to test it down there. Oh, cool. So um, it was a good thing to test new things, but also it was challenging because you there's things that you have to learn on the fly. Even though if you yeah. don't know them, you have to adapt to them. So it was good that you learned, but uh, it was challenging that you have to basically learn without any training. It's like, here it is, here's the manuals, and go ahead. <laughs> Make it work. That's before you can just Google it. Yeah, there was no <laughs> Google back then, so definitely that, that was a challenge. Absolutely. And it, was that before you went over to Telefonica? Yes. From there, uh, I went to Telefonica in Puerto Rico. Telefonica, Spain, was one of the biggest carriers in the world, and it was even bigger back then. And they had bought a lot of the AT&T properties throughout Latin America. Really? And... Uh, yeah, when AT&T started to sell a lot of the properties in Latin America, Telefonica was taking a lot of them. So they had a lot of, uh, they even tried to, to buy the incumbent in Puerto Rico that ended up going uh, eventually to Claro from Mexico. But uh, they didn't buy it, so they, they wanted to have Puerto Rico as, as a base as mm -hmm. well because Puerto Rico, being a United States territory, mm -hmm. has a lot of influence and it's like a like a bridge to the states, yeah. but also we are a bridge to the whole Latin America, mm -hmm. so we are the best of both worlds in that in that sense. Uh, so Telefonica wanted they opened a base in Miami, Telefonica data in in Miami, so we reported to them. And uh, yeah, in there when I went in the beginning, it was more with being in charge of the installations, mm -hmm. but Telefonica had two business units in the world, Telefonica Data and what they call Telefonica Systems, mm -hmm. Sistemas in, Sp in Spanish, or which is systems in English. And uh, in 2000, they decided that, hey, 
systems used to install what data used to sell. Mm-hmm. And we as uh, systemas had to put a markup because we're, we're a company, right? Yeah. We have to yeah. have some margins, even though we're selling to our sister data and then data would sell it to the companies that are there. We were basically their installation and consulting uh, angle. Right. And Telefonica said, look, I'm, I'm losing money doing that with that margin. So they merge data and systems into what they call empresas, which is em- enterprise. And uh, in 2001, a lot of things went uh, haywire, I would say. I, I was thrown into the, okay, your installations, your customer service. You have to build a NOC, by the way. Oh, my gosh. And uh, you're going to manage the projects. And I was like, are you crazy? Yeah, those are, those are <laughs> drastically different roles. What are you <laughs> talking to me about? I'm, I'm just installing things. Oh, no, you can do that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so I had to actually work to to build our knock from scratch and make it 24 hours, by the way. Oh, my um, gosh. So it was a challenging time, but one that I've always, I've always enjoyed those challenges, building out from scratch. And, uh, I mean, we can be talking all day about what happened in Telefonica, but definitely <laughs> one of the greatest experiences I've, I've had. What was the most challenging part about building out your own knock? Because that's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy because uh, you – I didn't even know what a knock was about. Oh, really? Right. So uh, I have to, I get all this infrastructure that we have to maintain throughout the whole island. Mm-hmm. And uh, also we have the clients. So it's not only yeah. that whenever there is a solution sold, we have to install it. We have to manage the project. Then we have to manage the client and uh, any day-to-day maintenance for that instru- infrastructure. And the people, the most challenging thing is hiring the, peop- the proper people. And then how do you keep, when you make them 24 hours, mm-hmm. how are you going to keep those people that are going to be working overnight? Yeah. To get them, first of all, get them knowledgeable enough. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've always said is that, you know, I want to have everybody that works for me, the technicians, if it was on the knock, if you're level one, you're going to be very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. So how do you challenge them to become knowledgeable? Okay, we're going to offer them since we were starting basically to build all these teams from scratch, the challenge was you learn enough and like, we're going to teach you, but if you show that interest and you progress, then you're going to move to another to another yeah. position that we were having. And the challenge for the overnights were learn enough so you can be on the day shop. Oh, really? <laughs> and that was incredible. I mean, it, it created a great challenge for a lot of those guys. I'm proud to say, I mean, they, I mean most of them, move to a better positions and they're right now in other companies as well and they have progressed incredibly and, and it was a great uh, environment to work at that time. And what was the biggest, is that, was the knock of the biggest challenge that you had while you were working there? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, yeah because it, I was thrown into all those things at the same time. Eventually, I was moved, uh, there. we started to grow so much that then we started to, I was able to then have somebody for the project management, for mm-hmm. somebody for the installations, somebody for the service. So eventually when we had that, I was moved into a systems engineering management position. So it was now pre-sales, which mm-hmm. I used to call the bad side. You know, yeah. <laughs> whatever they're selling, they don't know what they're selling. <laughs> yeah. Right. But now I had to be part of that and not only that, manage them. It was like well, at my price for you know trying to say, hey, you don't know how to do it, then you go do it. <laughs> but uh, then I, I, I really learned how to, appreciate their work mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, it, it is really, it challenged me to become more knowledgeable about the systems and how to then now insta instead of installing them, hey, you have to sell it. Yeah. And how do you talk to C-level people? And you go and give presentations and you go and do some conferences because then you have to talk about that. You're the expert. You have to show your company all that stuff. So, yeah, that that turned me into that pre-sales pre uh, systems engineering role, which I then after that I left it. <laughs> well, that's an important role. I mean, half of it is just poking the sales reps and making sure they're honest. Be like, well, we can do that, but, you know, here's a specific scenario and here's what it's going to take to actually deliver those results. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that we usually used to say is, hey, why are you selling that? That's not a product I have. Oh, no. And they would say, well, I sold it, so you have to install it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, but it, that that was part of it, how to, how to compromise and say, okay, let's see how to do how we do it. Let's already sell it. Yeah, no, no pressure. We, no here's here, here's what we already sold. We got the PO. We got everything. You got to make them, it happen. Yeah, yeah, make magic happen. That's what IT does. Like, yep. <laughs> so it, back then it was like, why did you do that? Then when I'm on that side, I say, now I know why. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's with it. Yeah. We have like, to sell it. Yeah. The CIOs, the CEOs, they want those business outcomes. It's like, all right, now we got Got to navigate this maze. How do we get there? Because yep. we got to make sure we get there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then after that, you head over to, uh, was it OpenLink? OpenLink, yeah. So there's uh, OpenLink is one of the biggest uh, Cisco partners in the CANSAC area, which is the Central America, Caribbean, and North South America uh, region. And uh, they were expanding from Venezuela. They wanted to open offices in Colombia and Puerto Rico other places throughout the Caribbean. But again, knowing that Puerto Rico is like a center hub yep. to hop to other places, uh, they decided to go to Puerto Rico first. And Cisco helped them out. Oh, really? At the time, I'll help them out, like tell them, then, hey, this is a good place for you to go. It's been such a good partner. Um, Cisco just told them, hey, here it is. Uh, and at the beginning, they would throw out some names on who to hire, and yeah. one of those names was mine. Oh wow! And um, so, so, I, so got, I became hired by by OpenLink. So Cisco threw out your name, or yes. Oh, that's that's a huge praise. Oh well, yeah. So oh, absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I got there, and um, it was great because again, it was a building from scratch thing. Not yeah. OpenLink because OpenLink was big enough in Venezuela, mm -hmm. but for the Caribbean part, an open market in the which was the, the purpose of why OpenLink was opening there. And uh, we were able to do some very good things. I, I, I would say that Curacao was one of our biggest markets there as well. Besides Puerto Rico, Curacao became our biggest challenge. And the biggest uh, client that we were able to have was the UTS, which was their big, the big carrier from the island. Mm -hmm. And uh, UTS is owned by the government. Oh, so really? UTS has had like the mon the monopoly of, yeah. uh, of all <laughs> telecommunications there, but at the time they were having the challenge because there was another company that was starting to get into the the market, mm -hmm. and they were trying to get back then a DSL market open, yeah. challenging what um, what UTS was having, and uh, the way that we became to go there, we actually. Um, competed against IBM for uh, for a solution to get some big routers, which was the CSR, CRS routers, 
in the uh, the nap of the Americas in Miami, really? connect them to directly to their curacao, and also in partnership with Ericsson, we were able to do the DSL network locally. But the internet drain was the, with those CRS mm-hmm. uh, routers, so we were. Uh, that's one of my proudest moments. We competed yeah. against IBM, the big one. Yeah, and uh, of course Cisco gave both of us the same chance. Uh, not having a preferred partner at the time. Yeah. They said, hey, you guys compete there. So there were three companies. But the big one really was IBM. So That's we huge. went one day there and did the presentation the whole morning. We knew that the, that afternoon IBM was going to present. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, then we went to lunch and we would say, okay, let's see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the, the operations man, the operations director, and the special consultant that they had stayed more longer with us. Yeah. I've been missing some of the first part of the IBM That's a good presentation. <laughs> that was the sign. I was telling uh, our GM, hey, we got it. I think we got it because they wouldn't stay here if they wouldn't be interested. Absolutely. C- what was so the pivotal moment? Or do you, can you feel like there's a certain part of the proposal that put you over the top or really got the, their interest? I actually think, the and this is a feeling I get, yeah. I, but it's what I think my, my, my engineer, my top engineer that was with me at that time, because I was in the presentation, I had his, his backup in case I mess up any technology I would mention, right? Yeah. So I, I guess that the, the thing was, we, there was a big question they made about the future of the CRS uh, routers, mm-hmm. which Cisco was changing. They were talking about how, what would happen to the controller card if they were gonna change it because they were actually introducing the, the three the three model. We were proposing the CRS one. Mm-hmm. So we had Cisco on our chat. Yeah. And uh, one of the engineers, they made the question, and uh, my engineer made immediately chatted with him, and he got the answer. And we got it presented to them right there on the spot. This Perfect. is what's going to happen, and this yep. is what it is. And uh, I think that impressed them that we were able to get that kind of connection with. Cisco directly, which when you're a smaller company, you yep. get that type of connection with the engineers, right? If oh you're yeah. an IBM, you have to go through some channels to go get all that stuff. Uh, but uh, definitely, I, I think at that time, I kind of felt from them, from the from the group that was there, that they got all their questions answered immediately. We were the people that were actually close, like we were saying mm-hmm. to, to the Cisco people, and we were going to be able to deliver what we needed. That's astonishing. IBM's been around since most people have been alive, or actually more than that. More than me, so yeah. <laughs> more than I've been alive. And, uh, and I think so. they were already old yeah. when I was alive. They've come a long, long way from uh, making scales. <laughs> they did, they did. And then what was it like going to, uh, was it uh, NPR Solutions? Yeah, so NPR Solutions was another um, MSP in Puerto Rico. So I got the opportunity. At that time, <coughs> I... I had two choices. One, Fortinet, and the other one was NPR Solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of why I decided to go to NPR Solutions. I really had a great choice on trying to go to, to Fortinet. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it was also the challenge of having something started from scratch. And not yeah. scratch because they, they were already established, but they were known more as a PDX voice VoIP company. Mm-hmm. 
They would have other products, but that was their main. They were great, one of the preferred Nortel partners back in the day. And, but they wanted to expand the products to more data as well, which was my expertise at that time. So as a way to grow again, you know, and started to have that challenge, I started to work with Ventura Solutions and opening that market with the data products infrastructure as well, having that to create that new portfolio for them. It's always just so much more fun and challenging to just build something from nothing. I mean, there's just so, there's a lot of freedom that comes along with it. You could just choose how everything works out. I mean, that's almost half the reason I started my company just because I wanted a challenge. I wanted to have basically unlimited freedom to think outside the box of how you do everything. Definitely. I, I make the analogy of, and it may, may sound right or not, but if you are building a snowman from scratch, you get to control everything and how it's going to look. But if it's already built, there's so much that you can do to change it, right? You Absolutely. Have to either scratch it and just start again, or just there's some little things that you're going to be able to do. So building something from scratch gives you a control in how is it going to look. And if they give you the opportunity to really form it like you want and you, based on your experience and how you know that you have been doing things, that makes it more like for you to, to do it, right? It's more enjoyable. Oh, absolutely, I agree. And then w- what was the pivotal moment where you kind of wanted, you knew you wanted to move from Puerto Rico to Texas, or U.S., and then to Texas? But So my wife and I have always wanted to, to we had long decided when we started our relationship that at some point we're going to move to the States. Mm-hmm. Um, things in Puerto Rico started to, you know, to get a little challenging on the economy. And uh, a lot of people started to look at opportunities in the States. And we thought at that time that that would be the, the, the perfect time for us to, to start to see where to go. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years, we went to here. We decided first it's going to be in Texas. And we decided we made a, a, a visit 2013 here to see where in Texas. Mm-hmm. Then the next year was where in, in Plano, where we're going to live, which is where we live now. And uh, eventually in 2015, uh, we decided I deci- we decided that we were going to make a jump, but I started to come here first mm-hmm. and look for a job here. So we actually took the leap of faith. I left my job, which I had, even though we were having some, I'm, I'm not going to say I was out of job, but, mm-hmm. you know, challenges so that, that came there. You had to take, uh, instead of five days, work four uh, and you know, oh, they're cu- they're starting to cut back on hours, yeah. trying to cut costs. Right. Oh, so that's not good. That's usually a concerning sign. It is, but it, it, we knew it's temporary. But at the same time, you have bills to pay and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, and a family, so you have to to take a decision. So at that time, I took the leap of faith and coming here, and you know, started to look for a job. Now, out of curiosity, what inspired you to Texas specifically? I mean, obviously, it's the best state. <laughs> <laughs> No, definitely. It it had uh, we did a lot of uh, research and stuff, and definitely it came out on top oh, with all the, the the quality of life and everything that we were looking for, mm-hmm. all the parameters. We did a lot of, uh, and besides, my wife doesn't like cold weather. Oh, that, so there you go. I always <laughs> joke with everybody like, "Hey," uh, and this is a joke. So yeah. when my wife watches this, <laughs> sorry, honey. But here's uh, uh, if you saw the the movie the day after tomorrow if yes. you remember when the, the the guy was saying okay so what do you suggest and then he goes to the map of the states and say okay from here down you evacuate everybody yeah so she said okay from here down is where we're gonna live <laughs> <laughs> so 
Uh, yeah, that, that was it. Basically, from those states that we decided, okay, Texas is definitely the one to do this. And you made a great choice. I mean, I mean <laughs> Texas is a new, especially DFW, it's a new Silicon Valley. I mean, pretty much every IT company either has an office in Texas and or they're moving their headquarters to Texas. Yeah. I mean, HP, Oracle, CrowdStrike, they're, they're all headquartered in Texas now, and yeah. it's only growing from there. No, definitely, and that's one of the things that we also saw. Since my my job is based on technology, definitely, right. that was one of the biggest hooks for us to make it. Uh, it's the best market. I mean, no one will ever be out of a job, you know, knock on epoxied wood, like in <laughs> DFW. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like half my conversations these days are talking to, you know, clients to be like, okay, we have this opening. Is You've had this opening for about a year now. We can't find anyone. What realistically are we going to do? I mean, we have to do a supplemental service or contracting. I mean, and it doesn't help when you have, you know, the largest companies in the world, you know, they're constantly throwing money at all these prospective new hires. So even if you get an offer out, I mean, they might go with a bigger company because they get stock options and or just a lot of cash. I mean, it's incredibly competitive in DFW. <laughs> I, I agree. And uh, that's what makes it uh, also a challenge to, you know, Oh, have absolutely. to stay on top of everything. Otherwise, you know, the, the competition is going to take over. Yeah. And it's like growing with, you know, every every week I read another headline, oh, yeah, they're moving to Texas too. I'm like, well, I'm not surprised. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the place to be. It's like, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Wells Fargo was like, oh, yeah, we're going to relocate another, you know, 4,000 plus employees to a Los Colinas urban area because they have more offices and it's growing exponentially. <laughs> hey, even, even the uh, PG of America is moving yep. to Frisco. Have you seen their office yet? Yeah. It is. It's immaculate. amazing what they're bringing. It is so coming from sunny yeah. Florida to coming to uh, Tornado Alley. That's just oh, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, uh, it's a good place. And then, what was the biggest challenge you first joined um, a general equity? So we had um, we had a I want to call it a legacy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, so our executive team challenged us with they have uh, they have a plan growth for the company so we have to make sure that our technology matches those those growth plans and at the time that legacy infrastructure that we had had the challenge of not being scalable mm -hmm. so the challenge for us was to start building something again from scratch yep. not from scratch because there's such infrastructure but replacing it with one that actually matches those expectations from the company and uh, providing the resiliency, the redundancies, everything that can be possible so we can maintain as much as possible the uptime that they request and be able to be flexible to start adding, like we've added some companies mm -hmm. and we haven't had to replace the infrastructure. We were able to forecast that growth. So one of the things that I've, that I've learned since I had my Telefonica days was you have to forecast and plan capacity planning for those growths. Otherwise, you're not, you're going to be running out of space pretty quick. So one of the things that we do is we do oversubscribe, mm. so that we know that whenever that hook comes, we're there for that. So yep. that 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 was the big challenge: how to forecast without knowing exactly what that growth was going to be. Yep. Uh, and have the, the the equipment in place to actually manage. All of the IT, of all the things IT can be, it cannot be a bottleneck for the business. It cannot <laughs> be, and also you know you have to to maintain because me and the financial industry, uh, as you know, twenty three point six percent of the attacks go to the financial industry, which is the oh, yeah. biggest by far. 
of all uh, all other industries. So uh, that is another challenge. Just keep that information secure for them. Absolutely. I mean, finance is every hacker's dream. I mean, they just they know their mo- they know the money is there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you know, we're not we're not uh, exempt to it. Uh, of course, we sell our reports from our systems and all that. So we know they're knocking on the door try to keep that at bay as much as possible. Yep. As long as they don't get in, that's the key, though. Yeah, <laughs> we, we try to keep them down. So far, looking knock on wood yeah. again. There you go. We're good. <laughs> then kind of going back to your favorite thing of rebuilding things from the ground up, I mean, what inspired you to start your golf podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, wow, that's a long story. It's 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So And what's it called again? Cause I'll the, ta- back, the Back Nine Report. So I'll, I'll tag it in the video as well. Oh, perfect. So the YouTube okay. video is called The Back Nine Report. Yes. Perfect. Are you guys on the Google Podcast and Spotify and stuff too? So we we have a YouTube and we are also on Block Talk Radio. Oh, That's perfect. how we started. So basically what happened was I, my father, my late father, um, he used to be a radio personality. And he used to have this shows in the tri-state area, especially based in New Jersey, Violent, New Jersey. And he started to get me to do some radio interventions in sports for him. Oh, really? For, that, for the shows that he had there on Saturdays in the morning and the after, in the afternoon. How old are you? How old are you when you're doing that? I'm sorry. How How old were you when you're doing that? That's awesome. Uh, it was in 2008 and 2009 that I started with him. Yeah. So after a few years, Bleacher Report uh, reached out to me on an email. Hey, I see that you're writing and talking about sports would you like to uh my passion my life passion is horse racing yeah so i used to talk a lot about horse racing and i used to puerto rico cover that uh i used to have a, a web page for news called noti reportes uh, and the website is noti reportes.com i don't keep it anymore since i left but that allowed me i used it as a okay i'm gonna get into concerts into sports events oh, yeah. and like that because now i have a press pass yeah, uh, good so idea. <laughs> the thing was, I used to talk a lot about sports, but mainly about horse racing. And that's how Bleacher Report got to me. But in 2011, the Open Championship, um, the editor from that I was reporting to said, hey, I'm running short in writers for golf. Would you like to write for the Open? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I mean, why not? I mean, I yeah. don't know anything about what's going to happen this year, but I will try. And uh, funny enough, I, I was able, they, they give you this rundowns about topics mm-hmm. that you can write about. And it's the first come for serve. Really? I came late to it, so I started getting whatever was left. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a schedule, and they tell you when this uh, article should be, is going to be ready, and you should publish it, and it's going to come out. So at that time, I started writing whatever was left for me to, to write about, and it was about the Open Championship. And I became the second highest uh, read, second, yeah, I finished second in reads that, that month of July. That's After great. After that, from August to July of next year, I was the top writer for golf. I don't know why That's or how, <laughs> but it was, it was it. And I was like, wow, incredible. Yeah. Now, the one that finished second on those months, his name is Fred Alvader, and he's a writer and a golf pro, teaching pro from, from Ohio. And he's also part of the Golf Writers Association for America. And he finished second there. And he was always like, how do you do it, man? You keep beating me up <laughs> and all that stuff. And I said, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's just 
writing what it is. Yeah. And uh, the thing from there, we we became invited by a venture capitalist at OpenEdraft.com, and uh, he wanted us to be writers with him. And we brought along another person from from Bleacher Report. His name is Kieran Clark. He's now the editor of Golf Check in Scotland. So he's cool. from Scotland. He lives right in front of uh, St. Andrews. And uh, we started to write for eDraft instead of Bleacher Report because we went there. But eDraft had this vision of having podcasts about every sport yeah. from writers that they had. So they had Fred and me started to do that called The Back Nine Report, presented by eDraft.com at the time. Cool. So we wrote and uh, did the podcast with them for five years. Oh, After wow. that, eDraft started changing their their model to be more fantasy uh, based fantasy play, right. and uh, well, there wasn't that much good for golf at that time. Yeah. So at that point, we decided, hey, this is not the focus that we're going to have. So we started to do from Unblock Talk Radio. We took over and we took it on our own and been there ever since. That's awesome. Were you a little scared, or were you excited to kind of venture off on your own, or was no, that? No, like because we already were doing it. Yeah. So we knew we just kept the product the same. It was a weekly show. We had an hour or an hour and a half, depending if there were majors. We have kept the same format of bringing Kieran to our to our podcast, and we get the European. Uh, we I call him the European golf guru because he's like a historian of golf. He asks him anything, and he'll start. Well, in Genesis, they started talking <laughs> about golf, and it's like, <laughs> I, I'm joking, Kieran. But anyway, he's really knowledgeable. I mean, I wish I could know about a quarter of what he knows, and he's funny and all that. And uh, we actually have won two awards. Oh, that's great! Uh, with uh, two specific shows in 2020 and uh, 2019 and 2020, and it was uh, the Solheim Cup preview and then the Ryder Cup preview this year. So and he was with him, so all three were part of it, and uh, it's it's been fun. I mean, it's great to talk about it. We have also changed throughout the years mm -hmm. the format of it. We started with that one hour, one hour and a half show, but you know, the smart brevity concept of saying more with less. Yep. So now what we do is just bullet time. So if this is a topic and we talk about it for 10 to 15 minutes and mm. that's it. So we can do many of those smaller podcasts in that yep. time as well. What's the biggest challenge that you've had by just trying to grow the podcast and kind of keep evolving it? Yeah, just knowing really what, what is what drives the listeners to, to, to do because there would be some... I guess a lot of what we have learned is the ancient um, fans or listeners, mm -hmm. whenever you talk about those players, we get a lot of views and a lot of reads. It's like really? incredible. And uh, like our top, um, our top podcast shows have been about Asian players. Mm -hmm. Nowadays with the LIV golf threat to the PGA Tour, mm -hmm. anytime we talk about that, it's like, wow, that's things but you can talk about other things and it's not as much receptive so it's like getting to know really what ticks the listeners to get you to listen to you or hear you that's what really has been the challenge mm -hmm. and i still haven't been able to figure it out well, i wish i could know that's a multi-million dollar question is yep. what what is exactly what the consumer wants or what's really going to have those freakonomics moments where you just have those crazy outliers just grows exponentially with the hockey stick trajectory yeah i mean that's 
so difficult. Do you, so do you use the, like, the analytic tools where it'll tell you like everywhere all over the globe where they're downloading the podcast, they're viewing? and Yeah, I mean, you get the analytics, and that's how we know that the Asian, um, those Asian, when we have talked about like Hideki Matsuyama when he won uh, the major, when Yuka Sasso won hers, mm-hmm. when uh, Patty Tavantanakit won. Uh, so those Asian players, anytime that we have, they have won something big, and we have talked about them. It's like the biggest ones. Like really? It's incredible. And when you see the analytics, I mean, a lot of the Asian uh, countries, actually, it's not only the states, it's more external that we get, which makes you think, uh, how do they get that? But then you see how they're reaching you it's through the YouTube, the keywords that yep. you're using. So, uh, yeah. But still, even though you see all that, try to replicate it, uh, I wish somebody could tell me how to replicate it all the time. Maybe that's the secret. It's like, how do you replicate that success and keep it growing? Yep. I wonder if it's because that's because that's the area of the globe where golf is starting to have the largest or the biggest increase of consumer demand, or you know, there's more people getting into the sports in those regions. Or I wonder what's driving behind it. There's so many. It's hard to know. There's so many variables. <laughs> well, I can tell you this, uh, and no knock to the states fans, right? But uh, when you see the South Korean females playing and how they they are, have been dominating for years in the LPGA, and it's the dedication and the way that they do dedicate their craft. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was in Puerto Rico covering the Puerto Rico Open in golf, uh, there was uh, Ryo Ichikawa back then was the guy in Japan. Even though he hasn't been winning in the PGA Tour, Mm -hmm. he came to Puerto Rico, and I remember him having to set up a special site. Whenever he finishes his round, he was having this big area where he Asian reporters would come, especially the ones from Japan, really? and talk to him. <laughs> and it was like, you have to wait because they have to talk to him first, then you have access to him. But it was crazy because it was like double the size of whoever was going to be after that talking to him. Oh, my gosh. And it was it was an entourage of, uh, of reporters covering him. And you would say, why? He's not even the biggest star yeah. in golf. He was back there. Mm-hmm. But then it tells you how really big um, the fans go out there to to follow their actual players. And it's that way in every sport. You know, outside of the States, especially in the Asian market where you see, they call it the, the next frontier in golf, definitely, um, which is why the LIV golf is investing so much in them. Uh, definitely, you see a lot of more passion yeah. to it. And I, and I would say the analogy to this is like soccer, right? Soccer is the world uh, number one sport yeah. by far. And uh, here in the States, it's growing, but it's never, it's not even close to what it's still outside of the States. Yeah. Right? So you see that because that's where their own players, you can identify more with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though you, you can try to expect the same thing from the fans here, mm-hmm. it's not the same passion as that. And yeah. I remember in 1992 when the Dream Team was playing in the, in the Spain um, Olympics, mm-hmm. there was this article. And it always, I remember like it was yesterday. There is this guy that went to the Philippines and he sees these kids playing, kids, young, younger kids, I would say teenagers playing basketball. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them, he offers them, hey, here's a Michael Jordan shirt. Do you want it? Oh, yeah, sure. He took it, he put it, and he started playing. Then he says, okay, hey, I have this Romario um, shirt. They would start in soccer back then. Yeah. Do you want it? Oh, yes, I want it. Oh, one catch. I need that Jordan shirt. 
He took it off like nothing. Here, really? <laughs> give it to me. So it tells you really how big that is and how fans are really about their players yeah. back then, outside of here. So I think that passion that they exhibit, and I'm not saying anything bad about the States at all. Of course. Don't take it that way. But you identify more because the States is the biggest country, the most powerful one, and oh, yeah. maybe it's diluted, mm -hmm. the, the passion on it. Right? Oh, yeah. But in the any other country, when you go against that big power mm -hmm. and you beat him or you're having more success or more challenging, that's where they actually you know, take that passion on. Absolutely. And it's, it's, I mean, that's a whole topic in and of itself. It's fascinating to see, you know, which sports, which things are, you know, fail or aren't fiscally appealing or, you know, they just aren't profitable or they don't work in the U.S., but in other countries, they're, you know, they knock it out of the park 10 days a week. I mean, I know the NBA is growing exponentially in China the past, you know, 36 months. I mean, that's why they're investing so much there because, uh, of course, they have a huge market and, you know, just copy paste, just play basketball over there. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, bud. I really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Thank you for everything. Thanks, again, Carlos. Appreciate Great it. Great seeing you. Great seeing you, too. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, share. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your coworkers. Tell your enemies. Tell anyone. All stay safe. Thank you. And have a great day. Talks.